Good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of this reading, I'll conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, then we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent, to, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went, uh, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. can go ahead and grab a seat. Thank you, Chuck and Chelsea, for reading for us this morning. Uh, good morning. I wish my voice was that deep. That would be more impactful, but see if we can get that worked out. After having a chance to meet you, my name is Ian. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at the King's Church, and uh, it's my honor and joy this morning to uh, open up God's Word for us. Um, we are fully into the gift-giving season here at Christmas, aren't we? Uh, by the way, you've got less than two weeks till Christmas, for those of you who like to procrastinate. Uh, so just heads up, time is coming quickly for you to get those uh, gifts figured out. Uh, but as, as I was thinking about the idea of gifts this week, as our passage concludes with the <laughs> gifts from the Magi, uh, there is something about our Christmas wish lists that reveal the desires of our hearts, don't they? I'm not sure if you're in a family or a situation that submits Christmas lists. It's now mandatory on both sides of my family, so you can judge us as you need to on that. Um, but some of you are more of kind of the spur-of-the-moment kind of people, right? While others of you, like me, uh, have been building wish lists sort of all year long, right? And when someone asks you for a wish list, you just send them that note in your phone and say, here you go, right? I'm ready for that. I'm actually the worst at this. I just really like nice stuff. And uh, my poor wife has had to fundraise various Christmas gifts for her husband, so you can pray for Molly. Um, but that's what my list usually reveals. But if you think about what's on your list, 
Um, some of you like to have nice new gadgets, right? Some of you would rather prefer just to have a nice meal out with friends. Some of you would love a vacation or some kind of experience, while others of you want to continue to sell your soul to whatever the latest Apple product is, right? Uh, some of you like things that make you comfortable, and some of you want a new book or a program or something that will challenge you. And then some of you, I don't understand you, you just like to be surprised. You don't even give a list. You're just like, oh, I'll see what happens. I think the problem with the surprise for me is that there's a lot of pressure when you open a gift that's a surprise, right? People are like, oh, I can't wait to see their reaction. And I'm just not an emotive guy. There's too much pressure for me in those situations. So if you like surprises, that's awesome. God bless you. Um, but I just don't get that. But whatever is on that Christmas list, it's revealing something about our heart's desire, isn't it? It reveals your desire to be comfortable, to be connected, to get into better shape or enjoyment of a good food or drink. You see, all of these are tapping down to our desires, aren't they? And I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of Christmas songs sing about our desires. There's something about this newborn king that is supposed to make us desirous of Jesus. But it's not just that. It's actually a particular group of people that are desiring this new king. And over and over again in these Christmas hymns, including the one we just sang, it talks about the nations desiring to worship the newborn king. Just think of a few lyrics from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. Later on in the fourth verse that's often overlooked, it begins with, Come, desire of nations, come. Enjoy to the world. It says, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. And then what we just sang, come that long expected Jesus, that Jesus is the dear desire of every nation. You catching? There's a common refrain that is in these Christmas songs. But if we think about that, it's actually pretty surprising. After all, even in our passage today, Jesus is born, and what title is he given? King of the Jews. He's given the title King of the Jews. So, how exactly did the nations come to desire the king of the Jews? That's a question that's worth exploring. I think Matthew 2 is going to tell us a lot about that today. Now, if you grew up in church, you're familiar with this passage, right? But you might be less familiar than you think. So let me just get this out of the way now so I have a clean conscience as I work through this passage. This passage talks about wise men, not kings. Okay, wise men, magi, not kings. It doesn't ever tell us how many there are. So the whole song of We Three Kings might be a little off base, right? In fact, there are probably a lot more than three of them that get the attention of Herod. And while we routinely see these wise men show up in the nativity scene, by the time they find Jesus, he's in a house and clearly seems to be a toddler. So maybe we need some fresh eyes as we look at this to really grasp what Matthew is getting at. So as we look at this desire of the nations, here's our main idea today. Here's what I think Matthew is leading us to see. The coming of Jesus reveals the desires of our hearts and invites us to worship the true king. The coming of Jesus reveals the desires of our hearts and invites us to worship the true king. But before we jump into that, let's pause and let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to give us insights into his word today. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you um, for uh, this season of the year where we get to open up your word, we get to look back and remember Christmas, the coming of Christ, and then we also, with longing and with patience and with expectation, look forward to his promised return. So I pray today, as we look at this passage, and as we look at the various responses to the news that a new king has been born, that the king has come, 
Help us to not respond wrongly. Help us to not respond inappropriately, but help us to respond with worship. Stir up in our hearts gratitude for the news that Jesus has come and that he reigns as king. And help us to see the places in our lives where we are resisting that rule and reign. In your kindness, draw us to repentance. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As we walk through this passage, I want to look at four responses to the announcement that Jesus has been born. Four responses to the announcement that a new king has been born. The first three are going to be inappropriate responses. And the last one is what we are called to do in light of the good news of Jesus. So the first response we see is threatened, that someone is threatened by the king. Look back at the text with me in chapter 2, verse 1. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was troubled. So let's set the scene here a little bit. This is after Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. We'll come back to the significance of that a little bit later on. And Matthew tells us that a group of wise men show up from the east to Jerusalem. Now, from what we can gather from the context in the first century, these wise men were called magi in the Greek. And they were sort of sages or magicians, and they had a special interest in the stars. They were sort of astronomers. They were stargazers who probably had religious beliefs tied to the stars. So to be clear, Matthew opens up chapter 2 and tells us that these wise men, these pagan Gentiles, show up in Jerusalem. And they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now our familiarity with this might cause us to miss that that's kind of odd. That's a strange thing that's just happened. That these people from the other part of the world have just shown up in the religious capital of the Jewish people in Jerusalem and ask about a new king that's been born. And they ended up in Jerusalem because they followed a star. Now many have deduced that this was a planet or a comet or a supernova or something incredible that happened in the skies. We just have to acknowledge the text doesn't tell us. And as I pushed on last week, there certainly is a supernatural element to this. If Jesus was born of a virgin because of the power and will of God, well, so too can God himself, the one who spoke the universe and the stars into existence, use a star to guide them to Jerusalem. You see, God is sovereignly moving the heavens in a way to show those on earth where to go to worship him. God is orchestrating it all. So the wise men show up. Now, the other figure that looms large in this chapter and what we're going to look at next week is Herod. Is Herod. Now, we need some background on him to appreciate the picture that Matthew is painting. Herod was a polarizing figure, to put it lightly. He was placed over the region of Judea as a tetrarch by the Romans back in 40 BC. And Herod had aspirations for great power and control. Now, Herod is not actually a king. He's sort of a puppet figure that's put over this region by the Romans. But his grasp for power and control, it ends up playing itself out in a cruel and oppressive way. When Herod comes to power, he immediately kills off the previous regime. He forces people in Judea to call him king of the Jews. 
even though that's not entirely accurate. But for Rome, they're looking at Herod and saying, ah, he's keeping the people kind of under control. We like that. So we can set him up. He can call himself whatever he wants, but really he's just sort of this governor of this region for the Romans. He is known in history as Herod the Great because he completed massive building projects, including a massive renovation on the temple in Jerusalem. Now, of course, if you're going to do massive building projects in this time period, that involves heavy taxation. That involves using those who can be taken advantage of for labor and to build up whatever he might want to build. And then Herod, later in his reign, which is about the time of the birth of Jesus, he becomes extremely paranoid. He becomes so paranoid. He's perpetually thinking that people were trying to assassinate him. They're trying to take out his rule and his reign. So what he does is he executes his wife. He reportedly executes some of his brothers and three of his sons. Are you getting the picture of Herod? This is a violent, immoral, cruel individual. Augustus Caesar reportedly said it was better to be Herod's dog than Herod's son. That's the kind of person we're talking about here. So back to Matthew now. This group of magi shows up in Jerusalem, and they presumably go right to where? The palace. They go right to Herod's household. I mean, that's the obvious place, right? If you were told, hey, listen, the new king of the Jews has been born, and that's all the information you have, and you're following a star, where are you going to go? Well, you're presumably going to go to the place of royalty. So they show up, and they ask, hey, where is this new king of the Jews? But the problem is, Nobody's been born in the household recently. And they have no idea who they've just knocked on the door of. They show up to Herod, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, and say, hey, great news, we heard there's a new king. Where is he? It's an absurd scene. And so Herod, I mean, if you show up to the home of the king and you say, hey, great news, I heard there's a new king, it's going to ruffle some feathers, isn't it? So Herod, in response to this, the text tells us, is troubled. He's troubled. This word for troubled literally means disturbed. They show up and Herod is distressed and disturbed by this news because, of course he is. I just told you what kind of man Herod is. He is politically threatened by the birth of any new so-called king. If a new king of the Jews is born claiming the same title that he likes to hold, well, this is a challenge to his throne. Remember the scene in the Black Panther? where before the coronation of the new king, you could have the rival tribes come and offer up a warrior to fight that king. That's sort of what's going on in Herod's heart in this moment. The second king is never welcome when the first king is still alive. And so Herod is troubled. This is a threat to the little kingdom that he has built. Tim Keller observes this. He says, if you want to be king, and someone else comes along saying he is king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. As we begin to apply this, he says this, Jesus is calling for an allegiance to him so supreme that it makes all other commitments look weak by comparison. It is a claim of absolute authority, a summons to unconditional loyalty, and it inevitably triggers deep resistance within the human heart. And that last sentence is where I think we need to pause for a moment. There's a bit of a mini-Herod that exists in all of us, isn't there? There's something in Herod's heart that is a seed in every single human heart. And the reality is simply this. We like to be in charge, don't we? We like 
to be in charge of our own lives. We like to be king. There's a deep impulse in our hearts that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden that resists someone else being an authority of our lives. We resist someone else claiming stake to tell us what to do and how we ought to live. We have a natural sinful bent to be king of ourselves and to look out for ourselves above all else. The kingdom of the self is strong within each and every one of us. And to put it plainly, Jesus comes to put Herod's so-called kingdom and all other kingdoms on notice. A new king has been born. And if you want to know where this lives on within you, you ought to do some soul searching. Right? Where do you have a hard time doing what God calls you to do? Where is there resistance in your heart? Where do you feel like your kingdom is all of a sudden being threatened by the announcement of a new king? Maybe it has to do with your money and your bank account. Maybe it has to do with the demands on your time. Maybe it's the call to forgive that person that you just don't want to forgive and you'd rather hold a grudge. Maybe it's that person that God has clearly placed in your life to pursue in love that you would rather just not think about or deal with. Maybe it's the call to do uncomfortable things for the gospel when we just like to be comfortable. Maybe it's the call to repent from that one sin that, quite frankly, we just like doing and have no plans to stop. You see, that's a resistance to King Jesus in your heart. And if that goes unchecked, it's a prideful claim to the throne. Andrew Murray, in his classic work, The Journey Towards Humility, says this, Pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. Humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. Keller's right. Only one person can sit on the absolute throne. So who's on the throne for you? Is it the kingdom of self or is it the king of all kings? You see, Herod is threatened. He's disturbed. That's the first response. Second, though, we see that there are people who are anxious about the king. There's a quick little note in the text. It's almost a throwaway if you're not paying attention. But right after we see that Herod is disturbed in verse 3, that he is troubled, the second half of that verse says this, and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem with him. It's not just Herod who's disturbed. All the people in the city are now disturbed. We can guess why they're troubled. I want to throw out two proposals here. The first is this. If Herod is troubled and Herod is the kind of man that I just described for you, then whenever Herod's upset, the people are going to be a little anxious. Right? If Herod gets agitated, well, who knows what Herod's going to do? Right? They're anxious and fearful about what this rival claim meant for their existence under his rule and reign. They're anxious about what Herod's going to do. He could fly off the handle. Who knows what he has planned? That's the first reason, but I think there's actually a deeper reason. Many of the people of Jerusalem surely knew the prophecies and the promises about the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. And these promises pretty much guaranteed that when this figure came, though it would be a moment of great hope, of great rejoicing, this figure was going to shake things up. He was going to make life uncomfortable. The status quo of their daily existence was going to be shaken. Things don't just remain the same when God himself shows up on the scene. Let's just take one of those prophecies. In the Old Testament, after the return from the Babylonian exile, they rebuild the temple. And upon the rebuilding of the temple, 
they realize that it's awful lackluster compared to the great temple that they had before. I mean, old men are wailing. There's a lament taking place in the city. And the prophet Haggai at that time, he shows up and he tells the people, listen, yes, this is awful lackluster. Let me tell you what, one day, one day, the glory of this place will be overshadowed by a glory that is greater than you could ever imagine. And in chapter 2, verse 7 of that prophet's book, he says this, When that day comes, I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations, in the King James, it's the desires of all nations, shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. You see, so many of our Christmas hymns are actually quoting that verse. They're saying, this happened when Jesus came. When Jesus comes, he is going to shake all nations. The status quo will be impacted. And the people of Jerusalem, they're uncertain about that. And by the way, they've been ruled by an enemy nation, haven't they? Rome is currently occupying their space. This idea of shaking up the nations, it hasn't gone well for them so far. So there's a fear. There's a comfort that they have underneath of Herod. And they're anxious about this announcement. At the end of the day, it seems like the people would rather have an appeased Herod than an enthroned savior. Now listen, we might feel threatened by the announcement of a king, but many other of us just might be prone to try and avoid the implications of this news because it makes us anxious. It might shake things up. It might cause a disruption that I'm not ready for in my life. It messes with my comforts. Do you feel that in your own life? That's how the people of Jerusalem respond. So we have those who are threatened by the king, those who are anxious about the king, but then thirdly, we have those who are apathetic toward the king. Look at verse 4. And Herod, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod, already, by the way, having evil intentions in his heart about what to do with this rival king, we'll look at that next week, he calls a formal committee together of his religious experts. Right? He calls the scribes and the chief priests together. Now these are not two groups that just kind of casually hung out. We're talking the opposite ends of the political and theological perspective. So you have the Pharisees, the scribes on one hand, who are associated with the Pharisees. They're the religious conservatives. Right? They're the ones who take seriously the law of God and personal piety and holiness before Yahweh. And then on the other end, you have the chief priests who are associated with the temple. And remember, who massively benefited the chief priests? Herod did. Herod rebuilt their temple. It's a big commercial enterprise now. So the chief priests are flourishing. They're thriving. And they're getting financial gains from keeping Herod there and keeping Rome in authority. If we were to put this in today's language, it'd be like taking those on the far left politically and those on the far right politically, putting them in a room and saying, go ahead and solve our problems. I mean, how's that going for us? With great trepidation, just turn on five minutes of the news, right? That's what Herod does. He takes the far right, the far left, puts them in the same room. I think here's what Herod's getting at. Well, if these two agree, then surely it's truth. I mean, if these two can get along, I won't be tricked, and they must be on to something. And sure enough, 
these religious leaders get together and they pinpoint the exact prophecy that talks about where the Christ would be born. They quote Micah 5.2, which by the way, Micah, just like Isaiah, some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. They quote Micah 5.2, which promises that Bethlehem, small, insignificant Bethlehem, was going to have a ruler come forth from its midst. And this ruler would rule over Israel and over the Jewish people. Now put yourself in the position of the scribes and the chief priests. They find this announcement in the, their scriptures, in Micah chapter 5. And all of a sudden, the reason why they're being summoned is because these strange wise men from the east show up in Jerusalem. And they say, hey, whoever that is, he's been born. We're trying to find him. Shouldn't that at least pique your interest a little bit? Shouldn't that at least cause you to say, that's kind of strange. I wonder if we should follow up on that. I mean, shouldn't they at least go and check it out? Bethlehem is five miles away from Jerusalem. Isn't it worth just a quick little detour down there? Let's check out what's going on. We'll come back if it's nothing. That's not what they do. They stay put in Jerusalem. This is meant to be alarming. The magi who only know the stars go, but the chief priests and the scribes who know the scriptures stay. You see, they have right knowledge about God. They know the word of God. They know the prophecies. They can point to it. They can quote chapter and verse. They pinpointed it exactly. But the moment that God sovereignly puts before them something that's pretty obvious to follow up on, they're apathetic. They are completely spiritually indifferent. Their heads were better off than their hearts, which, brothers and sisters, is a terrible place to be. Their heads were better off than their hearts. This is the fulfillment of what Isaiah warns about over and over again. In Matthew 15, Jesus is going to look at the religious establishment, and he will say, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said this, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, the news of a new king, and the news of the specificity of which we see here demands a response, but their hearts are cold. Their hearts are turned off to the coming of Jesus and the birth of the Savior. They tell with their lips and with their minds the greatness of God's sovereign plan to bring forth a ruler from Bethlehem, but their hearts are far from God. It was C.S. Lewis who warned a generation ago, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. But the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It was at best moderately important to them. So how important is this to you? Jesus can't just be moderately important. Christmas will not allow it. And these chief priests and the scribes, they refuse to even go and investigate it. They know what that might mean for their lives. So we have those who are threatened by the king. Those who are anxious about the king, and then those who are apathetic toward the king. Those are all wrong responses. So what's the proper response? It's worshiping the king. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And then verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. There's one group that responds appropriately to Jesus coming. And I don't want to miss how ridiculous this is. The wise men, maybe they're Babylonians, maybe they're Persians, they're from that part of the world. They would have traveled hundreds of miles to get to Jerusalem. They probably would have taken a journey of a month or two to get there. And they have following this star that's in the sky. They show up in Jerusalem, they get redirected to Bethlehem, and it's all so that they can see a baby boy who was born, seemingly in the middle of nowhere, so they might worship him. It's the Magi, not Herod, not Jerusalem, not the scribes, not the chief priests, but the pagan Gentile astronomers who show up and worship Jesus as king. Surprising, isn't it? But the response of the Magi, it's both a fulfillment and a foreshadowing. It's a fulfillment of all of those promises in the Old Testament that talk about the nations turning to Yahweh, turning to the one true and living God. Take Isaiah 60, for example. Isaiah writes, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That sounds an awful lot like Haggai, doesn't it? For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And then what happens? And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see, the Magi worshiping Jesus, it's not just a nice added bonus to his coming that we get to celebrate. It was further proof that he was indeed the long-awaited Messiah, Christ, and King. He will indeed be the desire of every nation. And that's precisely what happens in the ministry of Jesus and in the life of the church, isn't it? And us sitting here 2,000 years later halfway around the world is further proof of that. This all foreshadows the day when every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will come before the throne of the Lamb who was slain, and they will worship the King of all kings. By the way, if the scribes and chief priests had cared to take seriously what Micah 5 said, they would have known that was going to happen anyways. Micah 5 says that this king is, in, is born from ancient of days, that he existed before he was king, and he shall be great, not just over the people of Israel, but to the ends of the earth. So how do we, 2,000 years later, get to the same place as the Magi? How do we get to the place where we're not threatened, where we're not anxious, we're not apathetic and indifferent, but we actually worship the king who is worthy of our worship? How do we get there? Well, if we look closely at these interactions, Herod is only concerned about the question of where. He wants to know where this king was born so he can deal with it. The chief priests and the scribes, they only research the where as well. But the magi, they're focused on the who. They are focused on the newborn king the whole time. The where is incidental. They're willing to go wherever they need to go because they have been called and are on a mission to worship Jesus. They sacrifice a great deal just to show up and honor him. And we ought to be careful that we don't allow anything else 
to get in the way of focusing on the who, focusing on Jesus. So as we look at their worship, I think it can teach us three things about our worship. The first thing is this. In response to the good news that there's a new king, we worship joyfully. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, the magi, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a ridiculous phrase. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. One commentator said this is a quadruple way of saying they rejoiced. They rejoiced. When we are overcome by the story of Christmas and the gospel, that God himself came after us. He entered into our humanity, taking on flesh and blood, and be not just born in the likeness of man, but becoming a servant, a servant who was going to be a crucified criminal, but yet did all of that so that you and I might have new life in him, there ought to be a joy within us. We're undeserving of that grace and kindness and glory, but yet he pours it out upon us. For the Magi, just the thought of encountering Jesus, they're not even in the house yet. Just the thought of being there, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in this child. That ought to be joyful for us. So we worship joyfully. Secondly, we worship humbly. Look at verse 11. They go into the house, and they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. These wise men prostrated themselves on the floor before a child. That is the picture of humility, isn't it? They come with a humble, lowly, reverent worship. Falling to the ground before someone says, you are more important than me. And these men do that before a child. They show reverence and honor to this king who has been born. And we have to acknowledge that we are called to worship humbly because we have a humble savior. I mean, Jesus being born in a manger in the tiny little backcountry town of Bethlehem, which, by the way, God himself says it's tiny and small, so you know it must be small. That's where he's born. It's a perfect introduction to his life and ministry. Jesus lives a lowly life. You know when the next time in the Gospels, uh, when Jesus is called King of the Jews, occurs? It's not until the end of his life when it is put on top of the cross, above him being crucified, where they mockingly call him king of the Jews. You see, Jesus comes as a humble king, and he is desiring humble worshipers. Charles Spurgeon says this, Christ is always born in Bethlehem among the little ones. Big hearts never get Christ inside of them. Christ lives not in great hearts, but in little ones. Mighty and proud spirits never have Jesus Christ, for he comes in at low doors, but he will not come in at high ones. He who has a broken heart and a low spirit shall have the Savior, but none else. Christ does not come to big hearts. He comes to humble worshipers. So we worship joyfully, we worship humbly, but then finally we worship generously. Continuing in verse 11, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You see, the Magi take a long, expensive, costly journey in order to open their treasures before this new king. 
And the gifts that they offered, they are royal gifts. Gold was expensive. Frankincense was a high-end sort of incense type situation. And the myrrh would be used to prepare people for something big that's happening, oftentimes a burial. See, they were gifts that were expensive and fit for royalty. They spared no expense to come and worship this king. They give gifts that are fitting for the recipients. You see, brothers and sisters, if Christ has captured our hearts, we will joyfully give generously. We will joyfully, open-handedly in worship give all that we have to honor the king. We will sacrificially give to what is most important in our lives. And we will say with our lives that you, Jesus, are my greatest treasure, not anything else. I'm not putting my hope and my trust in anything else besides you. And the magi of all people teach us this. It's a beautiful scene. Jesus is worthy of all of our lives in worship. He's worthy of our time, our treasures, our talents. And we don't show up with our treasures to earn favor, but we give our treasures to honor the king. The king who gave lavishly and generously to us so that we might worship him. So are you worshiping him in this way? The king has come. He has called Israel's strength and consolation. He's the hope of all the earth. He is the dear desire of every nation, and he is the joy of every longing heart. Wherever your heart is longing this Advent season, we are designed to find our joy and find our place in the kingdom of the king who has been born king of the Jews, but will reign to the ends of the earth. May we be a people who worship him with joy and humility and with all we've got, because he is worthy of it all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have come. We thank you that you have divinely orchestrated it so that the insignificant, overlooked nobodies are the ones who end up acknowledging who you are, worshiping you in reverence, and laying down all that they have at your feet. So Jesus, I pray as we here in this room, thousands of years later, consider what that means for our lives. Lord, I ask that you would stir up within our hearts a desire for you above all else. Help us not turn to the false promises that this season might offer us, or to consumerism, or to uh, anything else that might distract us from the fact that you were born that you took on flesh and blood, and that you did so so that we might be restored back to you. So may you stir up within us a worship that is all of our lives, that is joyful, humble, and generous. And may that be a picture of your kingdom to one another and to the watching world. Jesus, we thank you that you've done that on our behalf. And we ask that all in Jesus' name. Amen.